Mates podcast. This is a podcast about rheumatology and it stars me, Jack and my friend Mike and we try to make sense of the complicated world of rheumatology and musculoskeletal practice. Hello everybody, welcome to the first episode of Roommates. In this episode we discuss a, a very interesting paper about axial spondyloarthritis and the symptoms that might lead you to suspecting this and how to refer onwards. So we'll talk about that more in the show. I'm joined by Mike Dare, a rheumatology specialist physiotherapist, and we talk all about this paper. And we basically go off on tangents about axial spondyloarthritis and how best we might recognise it in clinic. And we try to make sense of the complexity. So I hope you enjoy the show. Please do go and check out my website, rheumatology.physio. You can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Android apps and iTunes. And you can also subscribe to my YouTube channel where there are various other rheumatology resources as well to help you be the best clinician that you can with regards to musculoskeletal practice and recognising those pesky rheumatology conditions. Thanks a lot for tuning in and I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, shall I run us in with a bit of an introduction and then we'll just talk about things? Because I think I agree with you. Like, well, I absolutely agree with you. There's a number of problems with this. One, it's way oversimplified. And two, yeah, it, it's only for Axe Spa patients. It doesn't do anything for peripheral spa. Like, yeah. it's, it's not in peripheral spa. So, and also, what I was interested in, I don't know if you, you noticed this, uh, but... The freaking loads of the non-diagnosed people fit the MRI criteria. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, there, there's all these um, um, kind of articles and retrospective reviews and investigative studies where they've done kind of um, whole spine and SIJ MR sequences with normal people, and they found a lot of people have kind of SIJ criteria that would fulfill the criteria yeah. for XBAR. So I think there is a lot of kind of false positives um, and a, a lot of the data is talking about MRIs only having around 75 to 80% sensitivity and specificity in these conditions. Um, so that's obviously quite powerful because that just really reinforces that a normal MRI doesn't exclude XBAR, does yeah. it? Exactly. And a positive MRI doesn't confirm it either. <laughs> One day this is going to be easy. And then yeah. they'll come up with a new scan and it'll be like 100% SIJ, uh, like 100% AXPAR and 100% not. And it'll be really easy. Yeah. I mean, you, you, see, you see that kind of um, bone marrow edema and stuff a lot in... in you know, postpartum women, don't you? And especially women who've had quite a few kids. Mm. Yeah, and the the other um the other other subset of patients as well that I, oh, it's not someone I've ever worked with, but apparently you get it like unilateral in um, high load one sided athletes, like long jumpers and high jumpers. Um, okay. So, like, I don't think it's tons, but if they're um if they're elite athletes and that's what they do. Mm -hmm. um then you then you see some of it there as well because they just because they jump off their left leg or whatever constantly um mm -hmm. then they really overload the left side and not the right side so you can see some reactive inflammation there as well so there's um i think um you're not going to see many of them but it'd be interesting in elite sport to um have that as a differential diagnosis as well yeah 
and may, maybe something even like a a hurdle um, runner. I mean, I don't know if you if you if you run hurdles, do you often land on the same leg when when you run hurdles? You probably find if that is the yeah. case. That I think it, get... yeah, I think it depends, doesn't it? Because um, they they have different stride lengths, don't they? Per depending on how long their legs are. So some people will probably get to an odd number, and other people might get to an even number. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. But definitely, yeah, definitely high jumpers, long jumpers, uh, triple jumpers, definitely would overload one side. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. yeah Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of points in the article that um, could be misleading. Uh, I think the, the emphasis on um, abnormal CRPs or elevated CRP as well like we know so many of these patients have normal inflammatory markers um so for me that you know uh, really crp in axpa is not really that useful at all um like in rheumatoid where you know your inflammatory markers are quite sensitive or or kind of have a close relation to disease activity in most cases with rheumatoid but in your axpa there, there's very often not a correlation. So, although we, you know, you use it when you calculate in your your BASTI or your ASAS score, it's not really that useful. Otherwise, um, I think. It, yeah, I think um, from my experience, it was like, oh, they've got a CRP of ninety five. That's probably useful. <laughs> yeah. Um, like it, sometimes you get them, don't you? They're like their uh, inflammatory markers are so high, then you've got to attribute it and then but they, if they're ever like i always said this to people if, if it's like 20 you probably get yeah. a crp of 20 if you if you stubbed your toe um <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's very unusual to see very high inflammatory markers with um axbar anyway mm. so if, if you are getting crps you know in in the kind of 70 plus range then you know, you've either got a really outlying high disease activity or there's something else going on there. And, and you need to look into that. Yeah, uh, sure. I, but, I don't know what your experience with um, like um, the inflammatory bowel patients, Crohn's and colitis. I've seen a few patients where their CRPs um, and ESRs have been raised because they've come in and they're, they're just not doing well with their gut um, as well. I think that's that's probably something to be considered. Definitely, like those those are the guys that are going to come in with like CRP of two hundred when they're having serious <laughs> flares of of IBD, um, and you know you give them one hundred and twenty uh, intramuscular of depomedrone if they have arthritis as well, and then a week later their CRP is five. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Something else. Well, just while we're talking about. Um... The demographics here, because like you said, the CRP, they, they, I mean, they didn't really have it very raised anyway. Um, their, their mean CRP was, was under five, so no one really had it. What I was interested in was their HLA-B27 positivity rate. They had, so they, they died, let me get the numbers right. They diagnosed 46 people with AXBAR. They had yeah. 73 of them um, were HLA-B27, which was 22% of their population, which is a massive number. Um, yeah. So, like, so this is bizarre that they managed to get this. I don't know where they pulled their um, pulled their patients from, but that's a really high percentage. Nearly a quarter of them were HLA B twenty seven positive, and they didn't diagnose anywhere near as many as that with Axbar. 
Yeah, I mean, I I would imagine that this the sample size would have come from a lot of or a significant amount of people from Northern Europe, isn't it? So, the the HLA-B27 um, gene has always been thought to be much more positive in like your Scandinavian countries and Northern Europe, mm. European countries. So I think this study was specifically done in Germany, wasn't it? So, I mean, it would be interesting to see what their kind of ethnicity and, and kind of historic origins of their sample sizes were um, and, and kind of correlate that with the high HLA-B27 positivity. Okay. Yes, that might answer that question. And yeah, they just serial serial referred people with chronic back pain from orthopedics and G GPs. So it's not like I was wondering whether there was, there was people already in rheumatology. So they were sort of a biased sample, um, yeah. but actually not. But then like we, we were talking about, the they did have a quite a high rate of these sort of in the people that weren't diagnosed having inflammatory changes in their SIJs. Um, mm. And we know well, HLA-B27 is also sort of positive we said about bowel patients didn't we but also in um, peripheral spa patients it's not as high as in axbar but certainly increased so yeah. i wonder if that some people had sort of non-clinical inflammatory back but had peripheral symptoms as well yeah definitely i mean th this is the thing is you know when it comes to spondyloarthritis as you know it's not simple like rheumatoid where, you know, you can look at someone's MCPs and look at someone's MTPs and if they're not swollen and they're not tender and their CRP is normal, you can, you can say with relative confidence that they don't have rheumatoid. But there's no, there's no recipe for spondyloarthritis. Oh. It can affect, as you know, peripheral, axial. It can be a monoarticular arthritis peripherally. It can be... Um, kind of polyarticular, it can be axial with the peripheral enthesitis only. You know, it's a very complex uh, uh, spectrum of of rheumatic disease. So, I think the article and and what they suggesting really takes away a lot of the reasoning and thought process a lot around that complexity. Um, and there, there's so many spectrums, isn't there? So your your B27 positive male is going to have much more textbook features and respond much better to NSAIDs, for example, and have that classical morning stiffness. But then maybe your B27 negative um, spondyloarthropathy that's got more peripheral symptoms might not have that response. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I mean, my experience certainly is that the B27 negatives for Ne they're ne never as classic and then also women just don't fit the the pattern like i was i was saying to i was on the i did a virtual consultation the other day with a lady and said and, and she's been diagnosed with um with axbar she was she she had mri positive and uh, the symptoms are all all fine but she developed over a very long period of time and i just said to her like you can spot the men in the waiting room you don't even you basically don't even need to assess them because they come in they look barned or stiff as hell um and um and and they just you know they've probably got psoriasis or something and you can spot them in the waiting room but women are so much more difficult to diagnose and we know that they're more likely to be b27 negative as well so they yeah. it they are more difficult um so i think yeah you're right it, it, the complexity of it and the like you said the va the variance is the thing isn't it um because they don't like you said with the with the rheumatoids they they sort of progress in similar fashions they have similar patterns 
but none of these guys do. It's just literally a shot in the dark at what symptoms they're going to turn up with, what their bloods are going to show, what their family history is like, what their sort of other condition histories like it's all over the shop and i think it shows it in the um in the results of this study as well they they've got um i'm just looking at the table that they came up with the demographics and they're literally all over the place like they've got some with uveitis some with with inflammatory bowel disease some with psoriasis some with yeah. peripheral symptoms some with arthritis you know it's it's everywhere like um it's not like you get even you basically don't even really get that many clusters um that you can work from so like you said i think um i think anything that tries to simplify the the uh the recognition or the onward referral ends up being unhelpful because it's you sort of have to be you have to be questioning all every, everything because like we said earlier as well like if it's peripheral spa like their mm. back pain's not going to be their worst issues they're, pr they're probably in with achilles tendon problems or plantar fasciitis or something and then so if th then you're refer then you're like oh well their back pain isn't stiff for 30 minutes well, it's like yeah because their back's not their problem <laughs> yeah exactly. exactly um so i don't I, th I think it's an interesting paper in the things that they come up with but whether it provides certainly for like you and me in in uh sort of more primary care settings whether it's actually useful for us in any way i don't think it is really yeah i mean and how how often do we find that these patients can go through three or four months where they're absolutely fine and then they have these massive flares, you know, for two or three weeks where they're completely bedridden and then they could go through another several months where, where they're fine. Um, so you, you have to be very careful when you ask them questions that, that they hear what you're asking. Um, otherwise, you'll miss each other because if you catch, catch a patient who's on their third month of having no issues and you say, do you have any morning stiffness? They're going to say no. Mm. But four months ago, they couldn't get out of bed, you know, kind of thing. So I, I think we can't, we can't base our reasoning just on a few different points. I think the, the most pertinent thing or important thing is if you've got someone who's young, under 40, that's having an insidious onset of, axial spine pain you know especially if it's alternating buttock pain and they have a couple of extra articular features that we think go hand in hand with spondyloarthritis then it doesn't really matter about the rest we, we mm. should be in axpar in those cases um i mean the stiffness and the NSAIDs are useful but to say that if someone's stiff for less than 30 minutes and they don't respond to NSAIDs, they're unlikely to have AXPA. I don't think that's true. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I think, especially like you said, if you take a narrow view of the snapshot that they arrive in clinic with you, with, then you're going to miss loads of them. And I think <clears throat> I've got, I've learned my lessons over time that just someone with back pain, like if you, even if you ignore those specifics and then, but then you add in, bilateral Achilles tendinopathy or something then actually it turns out quite often that they do have a spondylitis of some kind maybe it is peripheral and then you because as soon as you start digging and you'll know this as well like you'll get someone in and you're like oh I don't think they have spondylitis to early doors you get to the past medical history and suddenly they've got Crohn's psoriasis their dad had Crohn's their brother's got Crohn's and you're like oh hang on a minute the their symptoms don't reflect a spondylitis, but actually their past medical history is so strong. How on earth can I rule this out without sending to rheumatology? Um, 
and and that's the thing isn't it where especially where we know that people's diagnoses are taking so long and they're running through a number of different practitioners before they get diagnosed we we have to be referring those people where we can't rule it out it's not like we're going i really think you've got a spondylitis it's mm. I don't think I can rule out spondylitis, so I'm going to send you for more investigations. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's incredibly complex, and I think when when you start adding in flavors like inflammatory bowel disease and and psoriasis and the family history, it, it gets quite medical. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of these patients are going to be on like your pentassa, mesalazine. They will have courses of of pred when they have flares of IBD. They may be on methotrexate or anti-TNF for their psoriasis. So, you know, it's always very interesting for me to ask them how their, their like articular or arthritis symptoms have responded with those drugs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time you'll get some interesting um, answers. Um, and I guess it's also important to be mindful that, you know, if your patient is on um, methalazine, which, you know, is very similar in action to sulfasalazine, for example, um, or if they're on PRED or if they're on, you know, Eternacept or whatever it is, that they may not come in with their bond or AXPA or peripheral SPA symptoms because they're on already on immunosuppression. So, yeah, they're already being managed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it, it can be quite complex. And I, I think it's like we said before in our, our discussions is, if there's enough to make you sit back and think and consider, then it's probably best to refer. Mm. Um, and that that's what the, the kind of nice uh, um, kind of AXPAR algorithm suggests, isn't it? Is that if a patient is younger than 40 and they have two or more kind of features of, of AXPAR, then you should be referring, isn't it? So mm. I think too many times we see these patients are, are held in, in primary care because they have a normal CRP or a normal x-ray and that's not the right way to manage these patients. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a um, conversation with, with a friend who started a FCP role and he was saying, this is off topic, but he was saying about, um, he had a patient, we, we thought he probably had peripheral spar related to his, uh, he had colitis, I think. But mm -hmm. um, to get into rheumatology, you have to have an anti-CCP and I was, like, I was like, well, that's not going to be any use for this. Um, but it, but that's the admissions criteria for or referral criteria. So I think it's really that's where I, I always teach the people, I teach physios that if they have to do blood tests to get people into rheumatology, do them. But actually, mm -hmm. otherwise, you're probably better off not doing them, because if they come back negative, the referral can get blocked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the. I, I actually did a couple of um, um, teachings for Connect um, on basically how how we can improve the delay to diagnosis because obviously we have a lot of MSK services mm. around the country. So I think Connect as a whole could really make a big difference in improving the delay to diagnosis. Um, and it it's really sad how all of the kind of fast track EIA pathways for for rheumatology-based referrals are so heavily weighted for rheumatoid and they don't accommodate for AXPAR or, or you know, peripheral SPA patients because how many of these patients actually come in with a true swollen joint? It's very rare that you're going to see a, 
uh, Axpar or a peripheral spar patient coming in with an angry swollen knee. Mm. They've generally just got low-grade arthralgia with inflammatory features, and they're not going to have abnormal bloods. They're not going to have erosions on, on conventional radiograph in early stages. So often these chaps are waiting, you know, 24 weeks to see a rheumatologist. And mm. I, I think the effects um, on, on the person personally in terms of their personal health, their mental health, and on the taxpayer as well is profound. Like we need to do better for these patients. Yeah. I remember when, because <clears throat> I, I was sort of around in working in rheumatology back in 2011 and they were just rolling out. Uh, I think it was 2000. It might have been 2012. I might be misremembering my dates. But um, they were rolling out the starts of those EIA uh, referrals, treats target, those kind yeah. of things in England. And I am... Um, I think there was at that time there was such a drive to get the rheumatoid patients on drugs early because it showed such a difference yeah. um, that the spa patients were totally just missed out because I think um, historically they were like oh you just x-ray their sacroiliac joints if they've got fusion then they've got ankylosing spondylitis and then it's sort of like it's turned up more and more and more complicated over time and the clinics have never kept up so it would be I don't know what's going on these days with trying to get those patients in earlier. But like you said, I think primary it's, it's it goes through the chain, doesn't it? Primary care, we've got to recognize we've got to get what one. The patients have got to attend, attend a clinician mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because if they don't attend a clinician, then we don't know that they exist. Yeah. And I don't I, I don't know. Um, I suppose it, when you look at the difference, like you said, with the, when you look at the differences to an, a rheumatoid patient and an AXPAR patient, you have. Yeah. Like you start off with NSAIDs, don't you, with Axpar, and then it's like, oh, they're not working. You've got to get the big guns out with anti-TNF. There's no real middle ground. Um, yep. So I think I, I don't know whether it is just more difficult to set a clinic up for those patients. I mean, there's no reason why they can't be diagnosed earlier. And, and you've got to make the assumption that actually, well, you don't have to make the assumption the data's there, that actually if they start on um, anti-inflammatories, regularly and early enough then then some of them won't ever progress to an anti-tnf so like you said for regards to the taxpayer we if we can get those patients into the rheumatologists earlier then they can get cracking with treatment and management and and it also with their general health stuff as well like you said if they're languishing on a on a waiting list and getting depressed and overweight and all these kind of things we know that that's rubbish for their um for their outcomes as well so i think everything just gets better if we can speed the referrals up um yeah, that's true i mean I think in in the um, kind of parliamentary review they were doing about this delay to diagnosis is only 21% of trusts had specific inflammatory back pain pathway, which mm. is really um, considering that AXPA is more prevalent than kind of MS um, or Parkinson's even, and how, how many resources do, does the NHS dedicate to MS and Parkinson's disease? versus AXPA, it's, it's really sad to see those stats. Um, and I think personally, th there's no reason why your first point of contact in terms of um, your inflammatory back pain pathway can't be physio-led. So, you, you know, it could be completely physio-led in terms of doing the workup, advising on the NSAIDs, and most importantly, getting patients exercising. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many good talks at EULA this year showing the the significant um, decrease in, in disease activity 
um, and inflammatory cytokines just with exercise. So we can make a massive difference to our patients if we just get them doing exercise. And it doesn't have to be the kind of NAS um, intense stretching um, every day. It can be anything, you know, any kind of exercise has been shown to be beneficial. Yeah. So I think I know there's a massive shortage of, of rheumatologists and capacity in secondary care. So that's a sphere where I think physios really need to step into. And we need to be, we need to be setting up and running inflammatory back pain pathways mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, getting the patients who continue to have active disease um, in a position where they've had a good workup and they can be fast-tracked to secondary care for biologic workup. And that process can happen, you know, with, within two to three months, really, from GP to inflammatory back pain pathway to sitting in front of a consultant rheumatologist ready for anti-TNF um, instead of making people wait nine years, you know. Yeah. So, Definitely. And I think it works both ways as well, doesn't it? Because you've obviously then with these inflammatory back pain pathways, we obviously know that there's going to be a number of patients that are not going to have Axpar. I mean, it shows it in this study that we were talking about. So you don't want those patients in front of rheumatologists. The number of times that or when I'm working with the rheumatologists and they just sort of bounce someone out with stenosis or disc bulge related or whatever type problems and you you look at the referral and you know that it's not an axpar just yeah. from reading it and but they're ending up and not wasting the rheumatologist time but that's not but they could be used more effectively um and that's what they've done with with ra with the ra pathways that we were talking about but they're not doing it with and, I, and like you said i suspect there are sort of locations in the uk which, which are doing this brilliantly and that should be rolled out more um up more across but they certainly with the physiotherapists like you said i think it's it's a perfect i mean we see so much back pain anyway um yeah. i think we're just perfect to fit into those molds um and and save all sorts of time and money and help patients really yeah i mean and the, there's always an inflammatory component to a mechanical problem isn't there like that's why we inject a degenerative joint with steroid and it helps because mm. there is always an inflammatory uh, component so your chap with degenerative back pain, you know, he's always going to have some stiffness in the morning. And yeah, if you give him industrial doses of naproxen, he's going to feel better, isn't he? Because there's always going to be some inflammatory component. So it it's, as we said before, it's a lot more complex than, than just putting it in simple terms. Um, but yeah, I think if, if we, if we as physios and other primary MSK providers work according to the NICE framework and screen for those extra articular features in young patients under 40 with, with kind of inflammatory back pain, and if we work according to the ASAS diagnostic criteria, then we're going to be getting more hits than misses. Um, and, you know, we can confidently say if we use those two frameworks that this patient's very unlikely to have AXPAR and we don't need to refer them to secondary care rheumatology um, because unfortunately, I mean, even if you look at the, the EIA audit from BSR, like 40, more than 40% of patients in EIA clinics have EIA. So what are they doing there? How did they get there? So they, they, it, it's not, as you said, it's not wasting time, but the, the sad reality is that someone is sitting at home with four very painful swollen joints getting erosions 
you know, because of inappropriate patients oh. being referred into these clinics. So, yeah, we there's a lot of things we can do to do better, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. We'll have to get. I don't know who would it be. The NHS. We'll get the NHS on the phone and we'll lay <laughs> we'll lay it out to them. Mind yeah. you, like you said, you you guys at Connect seem to be doing doing some decent work in that direction. So hopefully, uh, if that can be used like a um, anywhere as as models, and we need to get. Uh, I say we, but they um, need to use use the locations which are doing it well um, and get others to follow suit. And I think it's like with anything, isn't it? it we, you can easily show if you could get, like you said, if you could get from 40 percent to 80 percent, you would save so much money, um, yeah. both in the short term and the long term. That It's a no brainer, really. So I think these things do need to be rolled out. But like we said before, it works all down the chain as well. So us guys in primary care, the FCPs. Um, as they roll out in GP land, they've got to be on the ball with knowing who who to refer appropriately, who not to. And like you said, it's just as bad to refer someone inappropriately as it is to not refer them. Because if you don't refer them, they come back in three months with erosions, then they're completely screwed. So um, we need to be working it both ways, really, and make sure we are referring as well as they're not referring inappropriately. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I guess the the key is going to be to improving improving the screening and and kind of procedures and processes in primary care and probably in the next five to ten years most of these patients that are presenting in primary care are going to be seeing an FCP mm. not a GP so as a physio community and providers of FCP services um, it it's really the, the ethical responsibility, I would say, of the providers to ensure that their practitioners are really clued up on, on screening for AXPA and peripheral SPA um, to, to kind of make the whole journey better for the patient and the taxpayer, really. Mm, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, um, I am going to need to go in a minute. So a good, solid conversation. We'll need to have more of these. Um, and we'll try and do them semi-regularly, shall we? Um, and uh, yeah, enjoyed it. And I think we hopefully people will learn a little bit from it, but also take some ideas about how they can be better in clinic as well. Ooh, Jack, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. <laughs> All right, we'll pick we'll pick an easy topic next time, shall we? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Have a good rest of the day. I know it's your day off, isn't it? It is, Jack. Yeah. All right, mate. Bye. See ya.